welcome to Behind the Peaks podcast, where we celebrate and make visible the professionals from Himalayan community in America by uncovering the challenges, difficulties, as well as the accomplishments that they have encountered along the journey. If you are someone pursuing higher studies in America and aspire to enter the professional world, or you are already in the professional world, look no further. The unique life stories of Himalayan professionals will not only inspire you, but also remind you that you are not alone. I'm your host, Tenzin Jigme, and in today's episode, we have someone who is a solutions consultant at AppNexus, graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Computer Science and Economics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He devotes his time on weekends helping students at Yindiyin Coaching Center. He's very much involved in the Himalayan community and most importantly, a professional. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Cool, very cool. And uh, yeah, happy to be here. How are you doing today, man? Uh, it's not too bad. Uh, weather is finally turning great in New York City, which is where this is being recorded. So hey all to the New York people. But yeah, it's very cool. So you are a solutions consultant at AppNuxus. So what is that? So right now I work in the the ad tech space, which is uh, short for advertising technology. So if you notice, most of your interactions with the internet these days are free because you know there are ads everywhere on the internet. There are ads in all your apps. There are ads in even your podcast. Maybe right. not this one, but eventually. So what's happening is basically companies. There are all these companies out there who are trying to get advertisers to spend money. There are all these marketers who are trying to reach, you know, a specific group of people. You know, you have your Fords trying to sell trucks or you have your Cokes trying to sell like people to get more, uh, drink more Coca-Cola. So uh, I'm in this space where I'm helping some specific group of clients. So I work with uh like global companies like um, eBay, Microsoft, or LinkedIn. So these are kind of companies that um, I uh, help in terms of trying to get them to uh, monetize their content. So mm -hmm. uh, all these big companies have websites. Um, they have content on the internet where people come and see. And what they want, what they need help is to try to get help uh, advertisers sort of reach their audience. So Uh, so what I where I come in is just trying to help them in terms of solve problems, how they can make things more efficient, trying to, uh, you know, connect all the pipes. You know, the joke is like the Internet is made of pipes. So making sure all the pipes are talking correctly back and forth. So everything is working smoothly. So at a high level, I mean, make sure like the ads that go back and forth and the internets are working like they should be are working correctly. Can you go a bit more deep into when you said helping big companies? Let's talk about what happens, right? What happens when you go to, let's say, for example, we're in New York, so let's say New York Times. So when you go to New York Times, one of the things you'll see, like as you scroll the page and maybe read an article or two, there'll be a, uh, like an advertising somewhere on the page that says, you know, maybe it's like Geico, for example. Mm -hmm. Geico, come get some insurance. Now, what happened before that showed up there, right? Like when you first hit NewYorkTimes.com and then you go to that page, uh, what happens is in a like blink of an eye, like literally tens of milliseconds, New York Times website calls out somebody on the internet, whether it's Google, AppNexus, which was where I work, or Facebook, and says, I have somebody who's reading New York Times. Who wants to show ads? And then in another like few milliseconds, a lot of companies, like you, every every company you're thinking of, whether it's like detergent company, whether it's like Toyota, or just like a shoe store that's like down the street from you, if they're participating in the advertising marketplace, what happens is in like blink of an eye, all these companies place their bids just like an auction. So people who might have done like eBay, like an auction, whoever pays the most money gets to show that ad 
and then that winner goes back to New York Times, and then they get to show their ad on that page. So as you scroll a little bit down, and all of a sudden, in like maybe a quarter of a second later, an ad pops up for let's say drink Coke. So what happened is in blink of an eye, hundreds and like thousands of brands all competed in an auction. And no one's looking at this. It's all happening by computers and algorithms automatically. So in blink of an eye, all these companies competed and one company won. And that company now gets to show you the ad so that when you scroll a little bit farther down on New York Times, you see their ad. So the company New York Times makes money because New York Times gets to collect money from whoever paid the highest amount. The company who is showing the advertising makes money because they think that you're going to go out there and buy the product or maybe they think you're going to become a loyal customer. And then the outcome is you as a reader basically get to use New York Times for free. So you read that article for free. You didn't pay the journalist. You didn't pay the server. You didn't pay New York Times anybody, uh, unless you have a subscription, which is different. But we're just pretending we're on the open internet. Uh, so that's what happens. What is your day-to-day uh, -day like? So w when you go to your job, what do you do? So in terms of what I do, usually the first hour I do is like make sure nothing happened overnight, right? Like something didn't break somewhere in like... Uh, the website in, for example, uh, the website in Brazil might have broken overnight and all of a sudden for the last, like between midnight to like 7, 8 a.m., we weren't making money, right? So like the, the first thing I do when I get to my job is like just look at what happened since I left my job last night to see if anything broke over the night. Or there could be something like all of a sudden one of the advertisers in Japan for whatever reason uh, who used to spend like maybe $500 a day now all of a sudden stopped spending money. Uh, and then after that, it depends. Um, sometimes I do a little bit of like data analysis in terms of trying to figure out like, okay, I know this website, they came to me, they asked me like, you know, they're, they did, they're not making as much money as they used to, can they do? And then it, that involves a little bit of like uh, looking at individual transactions and amount of transactions is humongous, right? Like every second, there are millions and millions of auctions taking place on the internet for every page. So like you have to get very crafty and like be able to like look at all these data to say and do analyze it and to say like oh okay we're do we're like this is something we're not doing correctly or this is something where it's stopping us from making more money on our website. So like sometimes that might take a few days, right? Uh, and other parts it might be like sometimes when there's new uh, customers or new clients or new websites. Uh, and if they want to integrate onto our platform, right, we, we we provide like an exchange in terms of buyers and sellers of advertisement can come. So sometimes if new people want to join that platform or join that marketplace, that involves like, you know, uh, integrating for, between server to server. So there's two computers, right? And then other times it's just meetings. Yeah. So then other times it's training. It's simple. You mentioned what you do day to day. Is it a nine to five job or a, a non-traditional Typically, I go to the office around nine, between 9 and 10. And at work, usually there's like fresh bagel and like fresh, you know, just snacks and what every day. Uh, and then I usually, uh, I usually don't eat lunch at work, but there's like snacks. There's like you can get cereal, you can eat ramen. Yeah, I think most, most of the technology kind of companies are similar in this uh, because I used to work for a finance company and that was very different, right? Like I would always have to be in the office before like 7.30 and then we'd be in the office till everybody left. So we'd be like there till maybe 7 p.m. Uh, in the night. Uh, right now in the tech, my the tech kind of space that I'm in right now, so yeah, it's usually like 10 to 6. Yeah, there's no like fixed schedule. 
not diving too deep into your professional career, we would like to go back all the way to your childhood. So you were born in India. Before coming to America, you spent your time uh, in India for about 10 years. So how was that time like? Sure, yeah, uh, so it, like it, to get very, very specific, uh, I was born in a large, uh, one of the bigger cities in India, in northern India, called Allahabad, uh, which is a big city along the Ganges River. My family used to travel, and as, as most of the Tibetan, like the exile community in that's based in India, uh, like a majority of families there are basically, their livelihood is based on the sweater business. Right, right. So that that's that was the circumstance of my birth. Uh, my parents and my family happened to be in that city when they were doing their business mm -hmm. uh, during the sweater uh, the se the season for selling the sweaters. And my family that was their market that they happened to be participating in, and that was the time that I was born. Not a lot of um, people who are born in India are born like in a large like a big city hospital. Hmm. I just happened to be born because I was in the city at the time because my parents were doing their uh, business or uh, my family was doing their sweater selling business. Hmm. Uh, but in terms of majority of my childhood is spent in uh, Dharamsala. Mm -hmm. uh, but my family settlement is in the east northeastern India called Menpat. That is uh, like six, seven hours drive from uh, Dorjidin, if you guys know about Bod mm -hmm. uh, Bodhgaya, mm -hmm. which is the Western name, I suppose. So yeah, so the, I grew up in like northeastern kind of India, but then most of my childhood was in northern India, Dharamsala. Uh, and when I grew up, uh, things were very, very different. Like after coming to the U.S., I went back after a few years and things changed like dramatically instantly. But when I grew up, you know, like uh, I would go with my grand my grandparents you know, when you go to the temple or the Tuklahan, uh it's pretty, like, you know, calm. There's no rush. There's no crowd. People would just, you know, walk and go in the middle of the street because there's no cars. Uh, you just walk down and, like, you know, there are less people and they're most most of the people are locals. And I went back a few years. I mean, I've been there back a few times, but, like, when I go back now, it's crazy, right? It's like rush hour, like the... I think it's part of the Indian government or maybe it's the regional government and made it sort of a tourist destination, uh, so, like, now if you go back, you know, there's, like, rush hour. Like, there's, like, a rush hour in Dharamsala where there's, like, bumper-to-bumper um, -bumper traffic because all the jeeps and all the buses are, like, lining up in the streets. It's, it's a bit inconvenient. Um, but uh, I went to, in terms of school, uh, I went to Lower TCV. So you mentioned going to Lower TCV. That was till fourth grade, you said? Yeah, for for the most part, yeah, I went to Lower TCV. And then after that? Uh, after that, my parents uh, came to the U.S. earlier before me, but they wanted me to just, you know, grow up a little bit uh, within the culture, the community. Mm -hmm. So that's why I, uh, my parents uh, w came to the U.S. before me and my brother. Okay. Uh, but around fifth grade, that's when my parents decided, okay, now we can uh, join them in the U.S. as well, just so that we can get uh, a little bit more familiar with our culture, the language, the society. Uh, instead of being, you know, like the concern was, you know, uh, being born up in being born in the U.S., you become like fully assimilated, and that mm -hmm. connection might be a little bit more difficult to reestablish. Right. Once you don't have that, um, the childhood or the experience. So you moved from India to America when you were around ten, eleven, and how was that transition? I think uh, it's definitely a, like a very, very big uh, life-changing experience. Right, coming. Flying to the U.S., like, you know, flying directly into O'Hare, Chicago, that's like the first time I've seen snow, oh. right? So that's like very, very uh, big the milestone in one's life. And, you know, my parents uh, happened to ultimately settle in Madison, Wisconsin, 
And Madison, Wisconsin has a relatively, like, you know, it's like a maybe a few hundred families at the time, uh, probably less at the time, but right now there's like a few hundred families uh, settled in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a very big, uh, like, you know, American kind of community, right? There's not mm-hmm. a lot of... Uh, brown faces or not a lot of like Asian peers uh, at the school. The elementary school that I finished uh, my elementary like fifth grade in Mm -hmm. was very, very in terms of uh, assisting and transitioning. It was very, very nice because, you know, the school's district had like a designated Tibetan translator. Oh, wow. So they was like, I remember in my first few months, uh, I would go to class and they had this like the designated like a translator. I think I my English wasn't that good, like outside of, you know, just learning ABCDs in uh, in the boarding school. I don't struggling learning English or the language being a barrier, but I did, I, I do recall that I did have a translator who was sort of like helping me in terms of like mm. get acclimated. So that was nice. Um, so like I, did, I didn't feel like, you know, life or like the transition was difficult coming from the life that I had in India oh, to nice. the U.S., the, the the translator that you're mentioned that you're mentioning um, do you go to that translator or obviously that translator is not going to follow you throughout your school obviously. no 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 I think uh, I don't remember uh, the translator like full like all day long but I think uh, once like few few hours a day uh, the, he would help me in terms of like you know uh, seeing like oh it was like was something not making sense was like you know classes the schedules uh, everything was uh, yeah so. And I don't remember it being too long because after a while, yeah. Uh, after a while, you, you don't yeah. need it. Exactly. You, you sort of understand, like, you know, how the school is supposed to work and, like, you know, what the teachers are doing or what the expectation is. And I feel like that is something that schools in uh, New York City can implement because mm-hmm. the population of you know, Tibetans are increasing. Yeah, yeah. I think there's, I mean, in the Tibetan, like, the count alone, I think, is probably around 30,000 in the greater New York area. So, uh, like, yeah, I think it'll be cool. Like, one thing that I, uh, I think something that I've been, like, talking to here in, like, the with the Yindigim, like, uh, uh, some of the peers that I have here is, like, you know, like, wouldn't it be great to see, like, a Himalayan or, like, a Tibetan kind of a charter school? We have enough families, right? Like, if we have maybe a few hundred students, I don't, I don't know how much you need. But, like, yeah, I mean, right. it's just, like, it could I mean, just the, be another... The, 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 the... When you said charter school, I, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, a Jewish charter school. Yeah. There's quite a lot. Uh, I mean, not exactly. just uh, uh, elementary or middle school, but even colleges they have here. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so like... It's can, it can, yeah, you don't have to wait on the state to sort of, you know, create this opportunity. Like, if you have uh, a student body, mm-hmm. yeah, you can just create a charter school, and the state will, of course, give the funding. Uh, because of course everybody's a citizen of New York, or everybody's like a resident, resident uh, who pay their you know taxes. So they should just have, yeah. It's interesting, but I think maybe it's too early. But maybe uh, down the line, once if there's a bigger enough constituency in New York, uh, yeah, charter school, yeah, why not? In middle school, uh, when you transitioned uh, to America. I assume uh, there were a lot of Tibetans Nepali around you because uh, obviously there is there's a translator for you, a designated translator for you. So I assume there are a lot of... So you didn't feel much of a, an outsider? Uh, I mean, uh, in terms of like my class, there was maybe one or two like uh, peers of my age who were Tibetan or like of the Himalayan background. Uh, but I think if I'm trying to think back, I think I was the... I mean, it's very difficult to find someone who was born in India I think if I'm trying to recall, like, of the friends I had in, like, middle school, 
I think majority of them were born in the U.S. or like were born abroad, uh, but like brought over here as a, like a very young, young enough that they didn't have uh, like the contextual or like they don't remember being in Nepal or being in like Bhutan or being in like uh, Gala. Uh, so I think that was that was a difficult. I think that felt different, but some, somewhat relatable, right? We're relatable in terms that we're like ethnically uh, similar and we're history and cultural similar, but. Uh, in terms of like uh, growing up, I felt very uh, in the minority of a minority, right? Because like not many people I met were born in India. In terms of people at my age, at my, when I was attending uh, middle school or high school. So I know you are quite involved in the Himalayan community, but if you look back at your middle school or high school times, how conscious were you with your identity? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Yeah, I think around high school, college, I just sort of. I think I got a little bit disconnected in terms of like you know just like learning more about the world. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think I'm in a little bit of a minority in terms of saying like I would say like more to the effect that I'm like a Tibetan American. Like you know I'm not the same Tibetan as someone living in like rural Amdo, like who's still like in that rural um, nomadic life, right? It's like very different, like maybe few, you know, different countries, few different like culturals removed. So I did understand that, like you know, I was adapting. I think that was, I guess, that's the thing I was, I was internalizing. I was adapting to a new kind of Tibetan, Hmm. right? Like, and maybe around end of high school or somewhere around high school and college, between those years. Uh, my default language became English. Uh, something that like a way to check is like a your subconscious when you're talking to yourself in your head or like oh I forgot something like are you saying that in English oh I forgot to do something or are you saying like oh like I, I forgot that so that's like an interesting part I thought I thought that I remember like thinking a lot over the years was like when did that happen I couldn't pinpoint when that happened but at some point like my dreams my subconscious. I didn't realize it till I was fully like internalizing everything in English. It's like, oh, wait a minute, like my subconscious is English. Hmm. So that was my biggest kind of like identity kind of like what what happened. I think a lot of people can relate to that thinking in Tibetan and then speaking in English, trying to speak it in English. Yeah. Uh, till high school, middle school, high school, you were in still in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. Were you one of the kids who went to those Saturday schools, Tibetan schools? Yeah. I mean, Basically. yeah, I think it's it's good that wherever is that if your local community has that i think it's good personally i just just didn't feel it was as effective right like um in terms of what was being uh the class the saturday or the weekend class that was there available that was the run by the local community so you know it's a sort of a communal effort in terms of when i was there the the classes were very very like basic or or like fundamental like so you have to recall right like i was learning tibetan in india till like grade around grade four or five Okay, and then uh, in the Saturday school, they were teaching, like you know, first, second grade uh, Tibetan, which is, I mean, some is better than nothing, mm-hmm. uh, especially for the students who are growing up in this uh, environment, in the local, like the U.S. environment. Uh, but I felt it wasn't as effective, and I just happened to find a, a through course of like you know my middle school uh, found like programs like college prep programs and such. So most of my weekends, I did like college prep kind of like you know those other programs instead of the weekend like the community programs uh, so that's like i think it ended up helping in the later end because when i went to college you know they they were covering my tuition i think for me personally the weekend school at that time uh, was not as useful if you had the choice to make the decisions uh, what would you change because you said they were not effective it's sort of a resource limitation, right? Like if okay. you have maybe 10 students and that one student 
is like uh, much more um, in terms of their like reading, re- reading and writing. If they're at like a, in my example, like a fourth, fifth grade level in terms of like reading and writing Tibetan, mm-hmm. and you had nine students who are at a first grade level, like you can't really cater to that mm-hmm. one student. So it's like if you had one teacher and you had to teach like ten students. So this is like a sort of like goes back to like public education in general. You can't teach nine students and then you can't teach that one student separately at the same time. Hmm. Because if everybody's at a different level, or let's say if most of the class are at this level and one student is at a level like much, much uh, higher or much, much like farther advanced in terms of like reading and writing, it's sort of difficult to sort of cater to that. You just, yeah, you can't do both of the same thing. So it's just it's in terms of like what's more effective it's probably better to use of time to make sure those nine students who are maybe are at like the first, second grade level to progress their learning together, right? So you can teach all of them a few more things so that they can get a little bit more information or a little nice. bit uh, more skill. But I guess these kind of schools, uh, if you want to call it, I mean, they, they stop at some level. Yeah, that's true. Right. So I, I guess you can't really do exactly. much after that. So, I mean, this is like the, you have to... With the limited resource, you have to be effective to the most students that you can, right? right? Like that's like the thing. Like, why isn't every US, like public school in the U.S. great? It's because of the limitation, and then like each school is doing the best it can with their resources to uh, to basically affect positively the most students they can. No, no program out there is guaranteeing every hundred, every hundred percent of the students will be you know right. will become great students Absolutely. as a byproduct. Right. So um, it's just a resource limitation. So, after high school, you went to college in Madison. Yeah, so like I said, like the weekend program that I was attending that wasn't the right. Tibetan language program or the community class. It was more the, I was attending like a college prep kind of a course. And that led into, um, basically, if I stayed in Wisconsin, they would cover my tuition. I feel like people who, like I guess myself, who come into uh, America, into the States, and mm-hmm. when they try to get into colleges, they are not quite sure, or they struggle with the application process, or they, they struggle with where to go, but I think for you at least, you were quite... Fort- uh, I was fortunate to find a program that, you know, entire, the entire high school years, they were like trying to prepare me, it's like, okay, right. this is what you need to do. I mean, even because even the, the fact that you came here, you, 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 you kind of understood the system here, you, you have some understanding of what resources are out there. There are a lot of things that I would have done differently, right? Uh, like, say, so if I had to do it all again, I would still go through that program, mm-hmm. but I would keep my options open, right? Like, uh, there are a lot of universities out there who offer a lot of scholarships. Right. So, for me, in my, like, you know, 18-year-old mind, it's like, oh, I have this one program, and this one program is going to give me scholarship to this one university. So, I should only go to this university, so like yeah, the, applying to the universities is in the U.S. in the U.S. system is a big like a large numbers game. There are so many universities. Every every state has like what like four or five good universities. Uh, so that's like two hundred universities to choose from right there. Uh, in terms of like what I would have done if I had to do it again, I would have probably just just for the chance, I would have just applied to like all the top schools, all the Ivy Leagues. I think because the the takeaway is like each school might have different endowments, right? Like Harvard, like the 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 thing is like Harvard no. Nobody really pays the sticker price for Harvard. You only pay the full, like, you know, whatever, $50,000, $100,000 a year or whatever it is if your family is very, very well off, right? But everybody else basically gets enough scholarships and grants uh, because Harvard has a huge endowment. Their endowment is, like, billions of dollars. So they have enough money, so they give out a lot of uh, scholarships to their students. So all these big-name schools, they give out tons and tons and tons of scholarships. 
So people should like just apply to every college that are they want to apply if they think they're a good candidate, right? So then just apply for it. Worst case scenario, you get a rejection letter. Best case scenario, you get like a, a acceptance letter with like this is what we're willing to offer you in terms of scholarships and grants, and you can say yes or no. When I was in the application process for college, well, my stats were not that great if you think about it, but it was decent enough. Sure. And uh, I didn't even think about applying to Ivy Leagues or any great schools that you mentioned. Uh, and I guess it's just the difference in w- what you know about the system and yeah, yeah, exactly. what, what you can do about it and how to navigate these schools and the application process, I guess. Uh, sure. So once you got into the university, uh, yeah, how was that experience? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a big, scary kind of step, I think, mm-hmm. going to university or... Um, so the way like my fam- my parents are like uh, the way they are is like, you know, like uh, okay, you're 18 or whatever, like you're over 18 now. Uh, you know, you should find go, you know, find out your ways and you know go try to make a living or go try to like you know find your ways in these uh, in the U.S. Uh, so yeah, like that was the first time I was by myself. So I lived in a dorm. Right, and then it was a yeah random dorm. I had not, not I didn't know much uh, in terms of like you know how things would work at the time. It was like the big first kind of uh, truly being on my own kind of a situation in my life. Yeah, and then like I was really focused on my school so at that time. Right, uh, having applied and getting accepted into college, I think my uh, intention was to be like a computer science uh, major. So I was like, okay, so I need to do it, make sure everything like you know use my do everything right and finish my college in four years and you know I was like doing all these like looking for jobs in terms of trying to find a little bit of side income to like you know offset like housing expenses and stuff like that so like one of the things in terms of my household was like okay once you're over 18 and you go like leave the house uh, you know, you you have to find your own way. Uh, my family is like very limited in terms of like you know you you shouldn't expect any more help in terms of like you know like financial or like stuff like that. It's like uh, it's sort of like a tough love kind of situation, right? It's like okay, uh, you're an adult, uh, you can figure out what you need, uh, and then make the best of your life kind of situation. I would argue that's not quite a common outlook or understanding of yeah i don't think it's common right, too. like most most families and parents will do yeah they'll overhelp, right they'll like try to like oh don't go to class like stay at home stay at home you save some money and my parents are like you know go figure it out on your own like if you want to leave you have to leave you can leave but that's your choice i think that a lot of burden and responsibilities was like given to me in terms of figuring out my own i think that's a good way to jumpstart uh, adulthood right I, I remember doing my own taxes when i was 18 I was like, oh, what do I have to do? Oh, oh what, what, is, what is a W-2? Like these days you have like 25-year-old people like living at home and who have no idea what a W-4 is. Uh, I think we talked about how uh, you decided in your third or fourth year you, you changed your major or you decided to add a major. Sure, what, yeah. What I mean, was I wasn't completely... I mean, do, having done like computer science for two years and it was very difficult and I was getting like Bs and in some classes I was worrying like, oh, like if I get this, like if I do bad on this midterm, I'm going to get a C. Like I was like, or if I like, you know, don't do this project perfectly and submit a flawless code, I'm going to like get a B in this or C in this class. So that was like a concern. And I was like very, very like, you know, getting like anxiety or like, you know, getting that college stress. Um, So I think at that time I was like, okay, I need a distraction. I'll take some other classes. Uh, and my university actually had a faculty member who used to, who used to be a Tibetan monk. So he was part of the East Asian uh, department uh, at my university, and he teaches about Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. And then he also happened to be teaching because at the university there was like four or five Tibetan students, and we all said like, oh, we want to learn Tibetan. 
Uh, so the university basically, like you know, made the class for us. Basically, they had like Tibetan language. So in the East East Asia department, they basically had the Tibetan language as a course. So I was like taking that class as like you know, sort of a distraction from like all these coding classes. And then I was, around that time, when I was looking for distractions, I also took a couple of econ classes. And I think econ as a high level is like way more interesting. It's way more broad. Learning about how like you know countries and nations interact, how individuals you and I interact, how like business like you know neighbors and like every like the just the human interaction between two different things take place. It was super interesting to me. Uh, so I was slowly decided to take more and more econ classes, uh, and it was interesting. I think one thing I would advocate people is to do study abroad. Around the between that time, I was uh, I took a study abroad in Korea. I went to Korea for a semester, and I had some requirements of my computer science degree left over. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to finish my computer science degree abroad, and I'm going to come back, and then I'm going to finish my econ degree. So I, ultimately, I did a five year undergrad because, uh, like halfway, like I said, like I changed degrees because I was like, okay, I don't like computer science as much anymore, and I like econ better now. And then I was like, okay, you know what? Like I, I, I'm almost done with both. I'm just going to do both. Hmm. So I did a fifth year and did both. Uh, so w- when I went to college and I did see posters uh, mm-hmm. posted in, in the walls, uh, hallways, talking about study abroad and so forth. And I, I didn't think it was an option for me, at least curated for me, because I came from uh, a, a place where there sure. is, you know, I came from outside so I can have an education in the U.S., yeah. a better education, quote-unquote better education. Yeah. And then it doesn't make sense for me to go back to another country and then try to get education. Yeah, so it was, it didn't really hit me. So why would you recommend someone to go study abroad? Let's say everybody in the audience or who's listening to this in a similar background of their like a Himalayan descent. So that's one community you know. And being born or being uh, living and surviving in the, the Western world, so that's another culture or community that you know. So that's, that's like two, so you have two frames of reference. But, I mean, you and I have, like, no idea how, like, maybe for, let's say, uh, like, you go to study in, like, somewhere, a university of Nigeria. I think that'd be a great interesting insight into that kind of culture. Or you go to, like, University of Sweden. Right? That's going to be be different. It's not going to be the same experience you have here. So, in most universities, especially the larger state universities, have partnerships. So, it doesn't cost that much extra. The only thing difference is you just have to get there on your own. Because uh, the tuition you pay here is going to cover your fees over there at that wherever you're going. Uh, and then you're going to be, if you're staying on campus, you're going to be staying on campus and paying rent anyway. Why not just pay rent to live in like Norway for a few, few months? So I think, and then most universities, they make it easy because the classes are transferable. The reason that your university might have a study abroad program in Norway is because they already talked with the Norway university and said, okay, this is my, my, this is my Econ 101. What's your Econ 101? Okay, we can agree. So if my students take this, I'll give them credit for your class. It's not going to cost you much extra. At minimum, you'll get to experience a different part of uh, the world. So right after you finish your college, you got a job. How did you even got the job? How- yeah, uh, so around fifth. Like my final year of uh, college, uh, I went to the college career fair. Uh, I applied to maybe like around a dozen companies, uh, ranging from like consulting companies to technology companies and like a bunch of random companies. And sometimes like half of them, I got like a first request interview. Uh, And then it went okay. And some of them like, you know, things went bad because obviously I didn't prepare enough to interview. Uh, So yeah, through that, I uh, found the farthest and most successful I uh, was was a a company based in Chicago. 
they're a consulting company, but they also had a technology consulting group. So that's what I applied for, and I did that for a few years. So that's something that most of the big universities will do, where uh, they'll invite companies to hire basically their new seniors. What was the transition like going from formal education setting to job? Yeah, I mean, that was like the first real job where I was like in an office. So, uh, And part of the job required me to move to Chicago because the headquarter or the office was based in Chicago. It was, it was a very different kind of job straight out of college because this was a job that required me to travel Monday to Thursday uh, every day of the week to fly to basically a customer or a client, right? Uh, and then after that, I started flying every week out of, I had an apartment in Chicago, uh, but I would fly every week out of O'Hare on Monday mornings, and I would come back Thursdays. Uh, but it was, yeah, so that's why it's not a typical kind of a work experience because I didn't go to like you know get on the subway to go to the office and then go there Monday to Friday. Work was not as difficult as some classes in college, uh, mm-hmm. but you get yeah, it was it was it was. Well, was that something that you wanted to do? It was good. Uh, it was main. The main reason was because um, it's consulting. Uh, it's short projects so you're, you're like the one thing that i didn't like about like a traditional job is you once you pick a job you do that same thing for probably till you quit that job uh consulting is a little bit different because uh there are projects and things change all the time because you have different customers different clients different requirements so it was nice because yeah like you do different things throughout the year uh, and also the one biggest thing was like i traveled a lot when i was in college uh and then i wanted to keep traveling so this job uh, you know, like uh, this goes into a little bit of like travel. Like if you fly a lot of airlines, you get all the points, you get all the hotel stuff. So like for the last three, four years, I've flown all around the world without paying much. Uh, I've uh, stayed like, yeah, I went to Singapore, Amsterdam, Beijing, Toronto, like pretty much every big country you can name uh, in the last three, four years. Interesting, yeah. I did, before I quit that job, because that's when I like tra- stopped traveling a lot, I flew over 300,000 miles in those three years. So that's like around the world, maybe at least four or five times. So that, that was the main reason I wanted to travel a lot. You were the panel for the tech event by the GTPN last uh, few sure. weeks ago, I think. And uh, something that you that you said uh, was something that I, I didn't even think about, which was you said, apply to a job while you have a job. Yeah. Why would you recommend someone to find a job while you have a job? Uh, yeah, so it's not, not everybody loves their job. I think I was like indifferent around year three because I was like I was being promoted, I was getting bonuses, but it's like okay, this is not as um, interesting or like the what I found interesting is no longer interesting to me. Um, so I was like looking for something like it's sort of difficult if you, um, in most jobs if you have a gap. Right, like okay, you were working and then you were, didn't work for two years, or you were working and then you, oh, for six months you weren't working. Why was that? Like companies will, uh, it's not a good thing. Right? It's not a good thing to have a blank spot on your like history to explain why you had that gap. You had to have passed their screening and then have to give like they finally called you and say why did you have a gap. Most people will like just ignore. It's like oh, this person probably was not reliable because they're not working for like a year or we don't know what they're doing, but we're not going to go find out because we have a hundred other applicants who have looks great. So I think uh, and it's always good to keep your options open. If you apply to other jobs while you have a job, worst case scenarios like you say no, but best case scenario you find out oh. This another company who is maybe maybe it's a greater company or a better company, or it could be simply you're doing the same job, but they're going to pay you more. Uh, people don't. I think we have a weird. Um, I think it might be a commute, like a societal thing. 
we feel like, oh, the company has been great. It's been paying me, like, you know, it's been giving me a job for like two, three years. But in reality, like, uh, you're working for the company and the company is giving you money, which is how much they value you. They value you exactly how much they write on the check. And if they don't want to give a big bonus or big raise, maybe it's time to go find. Like for in, there's some statistics out there where our people of the millennial generation are typically is you, you get more uh, raises or like you you get, get uh, bigger income jumps as you change jobs. If you stay in the same job, you'll get like you'll you'll get raises or whatever, but you'll get less than just changing jobs. It's a quicker way to get raises. If you're not getting raises, just change jobs and. Uh, most jobs will like offer like ten, fifteen percent bump. The next job that you uh, obtained was it at the App Nexus? Or yeah, that so was- that's what my current. Yeah, so while I was in while I was in Chicago, I was looking for a lot of jobs all over, like Minnesota, New York, just to look for something different. I came to New York just because of the community, and I wanted to volunteer in like the community kind of a focus, and that's how I ended up here at D&D. Uh But yeah, I looked for a job in New York. Um, one of the jobs was this ad- advertising technology company. I had no idea what it was about, but I thought it were a cool company. Uh, they were, it's very interesting because, you know, internet is the next big, like, well, it was the next big thing at the time. And yeah, it's like a very crazy space. Like, everything is free on the internet, but nobody realizes it's free because of all these advertising. So I learned a lot in this position. Uh, but yeah, so that I ended up here, and it's very different, yeah. I think I used to be working in like a finance kind of technology consulting uh, who come like at the office like in like you know wearing their suits and whatnot and carrying their like think pads or your Dell machines and now like uh, I come to the office in my shorts and f- like not flip flops but my Birkenstocks at like 10 9 a.m. eat a bagel like for <laughs> half an hour and then like open my MacBook and do stuff like that so it's very different what is something that you would like to uh, see people who are in high school or even in college do that will maybe help get into the tech? Working in the technology industry is uh, great. Uh, right now, there's a lot of great opportunities, right? There's a quote-unquote like job shortage of in terms of, um, not a job shortage, sorry, the employee shortage. So there's too many jobs in tech and not enough people to fill them. And that's part of the reason why people in tech industries are slowly getting like getting paid more and more and the companies are stealing each other's employees. Uh, I think it's good to have some sort of a STEM kind of a background, right? And if you want to get more like into specifics such as like software development or programming, I think outside of your class, you should do a lot of uh, projects. If you can show when you first apply for a job or like a programming job that you have some projects that you did, uh, they'll be impressed. I think uh, the other thing, especially in general, it doesn't have to be about tech, but it can be about any like business, finance, marketing, yeah, journalism, right? You should always keep your summers busy with internships. Mm-hmm. Keeping your summers busy is like a biggest thing to either chance of getting a job or like standing out on the resume. If you like, once you finish college and you have three like you know, summer internships to your name, that's going to be very impressive in terms of, like, oh, this person was able to get an internship at this local company at that national company at that like non-profit they did three months of internships and that's gonna stand and impress whoever is like oh they're already doing all of this and they just finished college this is somebody who's very smart capable very dependable very driven so like yeah it's internships is a great opportunity and is a good uh, way to get uh, jobs because if you have successful internships and when you graduate some might, one of those internships might lead to a job. 
do you see yourself working this job for you for the rest of your life? I don't think that. Uh, no, 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 no. I mean, no. I think everybody should have. I mean, if if you find something that is like super great and you can see yourself enjoying doing for the rest of your life, that's great, right? Some people do find that, uh, but I think it's for me, it's more of a practical like kind of sense. Is like, hey. Uh, I'll work for a few years, like ten, maybe ten, fifteen years, and then hopefully I don't have to work after that. Like that—that's like my kind of uh, perspective on life. Like the traditional perspective is, uh, I'll finish college, I'll work till I'm like sixty or something, and then I'll retire. Uh, but I, I think that doesn't have to be the way. Uh, and fortunate enough, I'm like given my like background and education and whatnot, I, the circumstances I have. Like my dream or my goal is to like work for like maybe ten years and then like ultimately just stop working or just do some other passion project where I don't have to rely on our income or like passion project where I don't have to rely on making sure I'm getting a paycheck every week or whatever. Could you clarify on uh, what you envision in those years when when you don't work? Uh, I mean, I'll be doing like yeah, you know, like nonprofit work or like going volunteer, going volunteer for like the uh, Greenpeace, go volunteer for like Tibet Corps. There's a lot of opportunities to volunteer for. So, do you see yourself going back to India or going back to Dharamsala and giving back to your community? Yeah, I think uh, I'll I will try to do that more. I, up till now, I haven't been as like super active. And part of the reason coming to New York is you know trying to find a community in terms of like trying to give back. I mean, yeah, I think ultimately, I think it's 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 paradoxical, right? Everybody in the U.S. is looking for a simpler kind of life, quote unquote, and maybe some of them want to go back to India or Nepal or what have you. And it's like everybody in Nepal and India wants to come to the U.S. It's very paradoxical because everybody wants what they can't have. So, in the first job that you obtained right after college, and the job you're doing right now, when you go through your day to day, do you see yourself as a Tibetan? Do you see yourself as a Himalayan person? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think um, in my old job, I used to have nobody, but this, like my current job, uh, I have a colleague uh, who's a Sherpa. Uh, and it was interesting because I saw his name on our, like in my first week, I was looking through the roster in terms of like the seating charts of who's sitting where, and I saw like a name, a familiar name is like, I guess I won't say the name because yeah, whatever. Uh, but it was like a, like let's say like it was a, like um, like a common name like John, but like you know like a Himalayan name that's very common. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. It's like I wonder like yeah. And then I went and met, uh, met him, and it turned out yeah, he's Sherpa. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. And then, you know, it's like interesting for the first time. Uh, but it's, yeah, I try to keep a little bit of like, you know, a little bit of culture. And like, uh, I would like sort of when friends and coworkers are interested, try to give them like a perspective of like, like mindfulness. Like what is mindfulness? Like someone's getting uh, upset or something or someone's getting like really stressed out about things. Like just try to get them to realize like, hey, like you're getting angry and there's no reason to get angry because like whoever is like causing you to do this, like it's their fault or it's, it's their problem that they're not getting what they want. It's like, you did everything you could. This is out of your hand. For you to get stress, you're only causing yourself pain, right? Like, there's not, nothing to do. You did everything you could, and now the rest is out of your hands. So, like, there's no point, like, stressing out. So, there's like a little bit of, like, cultural and more um, sort of, yeah, like, the philosophy of, like, Buddhism and stuff like that. So, uh, obviously won't share it where, where it's not welcome, but if someone is, like, looking for advice in terms of, like... Like, yeah, it's like very stress or what's your take on something? And then I'll just give them my take. What advice do you have for younger generations in any phase of their life and they are in uh, in terms of building a professional career? I mean, there are a lot of things you can do, but I think uh, something that I think 
everybody should have is like always try to be have some sort of a goal that you're working towards so that you're not sort of um like wasting quote unquote time like wasting time like t- it's not really like it's an easy thing to say like don't waste your time uh but always have something that you're like working towards so like if you're in uh high school right you should be trying to work be working towards like get make sure that um sort of like the next few years is in your horizon is like okay I I need to start doing SAT practice then and then I need to start applying for college these are the few colleges that I already know I want to apply or like start looking like oh there's this college in uh Washington that is great because blah 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 but if you like so if you're in college you should be having some perspectives like okay this year uh I need to like next year I want to study at study abroad or n- next year I want to get into these three internships like always be ahead of the plan so that when times come like you you know, you you're not like oh the summer is here and I don't know what I'm doing this summer I always try to have like at least the next few years uh sort of like have a rough idea of what you're doing like if you're in late college and you should already be like thinking about college uh, jobs and what industry you want you should already be like trying to like fixing your resumes and going to resume workshops and job interview workshops in terms of like how you can do your interviews better uh, always have like a plan never end up being in a situation where you're like oh I don't know what to do now that that's how I generally operate like I have at least next few years if not further like I have like a 10 year goal that's very very uh, broad but i have a 3 year goal that's like more specific and i have a 1 year goal that's like super specific right mm-hmm. uh it's like so that way you can sort of adjust so you don't have to do the thing that's 10 years away but if it's something simpler to do and this can be personal too right like oh next year i want to be healthier how can i become healthier if you plan you should always be at least somewhat comfortable in terms of the situation that arises and have a little bit of a better grasp of yeah always be prepared i guess that's my one sentence nice. always be prepared it is certainly clear that there are a lot more stories like kidups and we will try to cover that in the next episode by bringing another professional from our community we are very much excited to see kidup move forward in his professional life and want to wish him luck for his future endeavors i want to thank all the listeners if you have reached this far that's our third episode of behind the peaks podcast Please follow us on whatever platform you are listening to and don't forget to leave a review and rating. Until next time, stay professional.